there was breakfast there. We went up for quite an early meeting and um, I ended up helping a peer of the realm open her pots of jam so that she could have a croissant, which was probably the thing that broke the ice best for me. And once you've opened a pot of jam for someone, there's nothing else that they can do to intimidate you. That's the, um, that's, that's the line that's been crossed at that point. Welcome to Pros and Coms. In this podcast, I talk to people about their professional and personal stories, uncovering the different ways and common themes of resonating with an audience. After all, communication is essentially storytelling. I'm Maria Jinai, and today I'll be talking to Rob Bailey. Rob is a lecturer and the Director of Education at the Centre for Journalism at the University of Kent. His career as a journalist was all about investigating and communicating new stories to the public. And now he's teaching those skills to the next generation. Let's start off by getting to know you. Tell me a bit about yourself. So I'm, my job at the moment is I'm Director of Education at the Centre for Journalism at the University of Kent, um, which is uh, based at the Medway campus of the university. And it's where we teach a professionally accredited journalism programme uh, for undergraduates and postgraduates. Uh, my job within that, um, I'm director of education, but my main day job is being a lecturer in reporting and writing. So I teach uh, young people how to write for a living. Um, and that's, that's my main thing. And that's based on experience as a journalist. I was a um, regional journalist for 12 years, uh, starting in 1999. Uh, and also I was briefly um, a senior communications officer for Cairn County Council. So I've worked in the uh, local government as well. So was working in sort of communicational media something you wanted to do generally or did you really want to be a journalist growing up? How did you move into journalism initially? I don't remember exactly when it was but I know that I was quite young when I decided that I was going to be a journalist. It was one of those things that happened quite early on in my school life. I remember going for a meal out with mum and dad when I was probably about 14 or something to a restaurant up the road from our house and having a, a heated conversation with a guy, a complete stranger on the next table because he'd overheard me telling my mum and dad that I was going to be editor of NME one day. Uh, and he decided that, you know, the best thing he could do with a young person saying that was butt in across the aisle and say, that's never going to happen. Um, to which I explained to him a great length why it would. Turned out he was right. But um, but nevertheless, at kind of age 14, I think I was already pretty committed to the idea of being a journalist. And so I, I kind of made decisions through A-levels and degree and everything else. It was all really geared up towards towards that career. And I was lucky that, you know, um, it all worked out. What are the most important things you've learned from being a journalist, being in sort of a, a job of communication that you've now passed on to, to your students? One of the very first lessons that I give my students is the importance of understanding your audience. Uh, being a communicator is not about you being interested in yourself and talking to yourself in a language that you understand, which is a mistake an awful lot of people, an awful lot of people make. It's about understanding that there's someone out there who doesn't know the things that you know, that doesn't have the language and the expertise that you have, and you have to tell a story in a way that will interest them. And um, I think the most fundamental part of communication is being able to step outside of your own head, understand what bits of your knowledge will be difficult for somebody else and being able to 
communicate then in a way that is inclusive to all kinds of different audiences. Um, so yes, knowing your audience and, and, you know, that's, um, that's the very first step that I always say that, that young journalists should make. They need to, you know, for, for if you're thinking specifically about journalism, then that's looking at who reads each of our newspaper titles, who watches the BBC, who watches channel four and understanding why stories are packaged the way they are for those audiences. But the same thing is transferable to any field of marketing and communications. If you're trying to sell a product, if you're trying to raise awareness of something, then the very first step is thinking, well, who is it I'm trying to reach and what language and what kind of, um, kind of approach do I need to take to engage those people? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, coming from sort of a science academia perspective as well, that was one of the things that was really lacking in that field is that, you know, scientists know what they're doing, but the language is so complex that conveying it even to maybe peers in the field is super hard, let alone more public engagement, public outreach sort of stuff. And it's really hard to do that. It's hard to step outside of your own head. And you know, if you're if you're an expert in something and you live in that world every day and you live around acronyms and organizations and, and legislation and regulations that are just part of your everyday life, it can become very easy just to assume that everybody has that experience and has that language. And you know, I mean I professionally have dealt with millions and millions of press releases being sent out by all kinds of people who want journalists to write about them but they're written in a way which is entirely impenetrable, you know, and, and that's the first step really. It's being able to, to break that down. So like, how, how would you go about doing that? Are there any basic steps you can start to take in whatever field you're in to try and step outside of yourself and see something from another perspective? I think the specifics of that answer will depend entirely on exactly what it is you're trying to do and who for, but I can give you the bit of advice that I was given when I first started as a journalist, which was um, when I was working at a local newspaper, I had the, um, the advantage, I suppose, in a way of working in an area that I'd grown up in. Uh, so I knew the area very well. And um, one of my first editors told me, just write as if you're explaining the story to your mum. Um, because, you know, ultimately for a local newspaper, my mum was the kind of person who read the newspaper. She was my audience, but she's also somebody who wouldn't necessarily understand all of the intricacies of you know, local government or, you know, the, kind of the, the way that courts run, the kind of things that I was reporting on all the time. I've got to simplify that kind of stuff to make sure that it means something to her. And, um, you know what, I mean, that might be quite a universal thing. If, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about communicating to a general audience, Try and do it in a way that would make sense to your mum. Yeah, I actually did try that once and I ran a presentation by my mum and there was this one sentence, I can't remember what it was, but I went through it and she went, I don't know what that means. So I, in all my wisdom, just said it slower and she went, you can say it as slow as you want. I still don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a brilliant bit of advice, actually. So obviously you are teaching, but it's a pandemic. So how have you coped through the pandemic and how has teaching and interacting with students changed? So there's been a lot of talk in the press about, about what it's been like for students this term. And I think an awful lot of what you've read is true. I mean, we, we have done an awful lot of teaching online uh, and that has changed the dynamic um, enormously. 
we tried to invite students onto campus and we, we kind of created ways of doing that by breaking them down into smaller groups that would have been safe. But understandably, students have been incredibly cautious and, and where they have the option to stay at home and learn, they've taken it. So we find that there's been a very few students who actually really want to be on campus and an awful lot of our teaching has looked you know, a little bit like what we're looking at now. We've, we've been talking over video calls. And that has, that has two consequences. And I guess I think we're going to talk about these in a few ways over the course of this conversation. Um, but one is just the rapport that you have with someone over a screen is very different to the rapport you have with them in person. And that's, that's a huge challenge for me as a teacher because the energy of a class is totally different. You ask a question to a class full of students and even if they don't really want to answer the question, in the end, the silence of a group of people all together becomes so unbearable that someone pipes up, the ice is broken and a, and a debate breaks out and it, and it always works and it's fantastic. But online, that doesn't work. Online, you can ask a question and everyone's got their camera off, everyone's got their microphone muted and you're just sat there staring at a blank screen and then you've got to do something about it. And I find it's very difficult to get real debate, real kind of engagement going between students in an online environment. It's been, it's been actually exhausting this year trying to manage that and make the best of that. But the other thing is much more subject specific, which is that journalism is all about getting out into the world. It's about meeting people who have an experience that is nothing like yours, learning about that and then telling other people about it so that they can learn from it. And none of that process is possible at the moment. You can't go out, start randomly talking to strangers in a high street and work out what they're worried about and then go and write a story about it. So we've had to completely change the way that we teach journalism to favour online sources, um, to be thinking about using social media more. Um, and while those are the adaptions that are being made in professional newsrooms by journalists all over this country, they're not for the best. And experienced journalists are struggling with how to make that work. So trainee journalists, brand new first years coming into university, have got a really difficult time of trying to kind of get their head around a completely alien way of working, um, which seems to be anathema to the purpose of journalism to begin with. So it's, it's been a challenge, I would have to say that. Um, our students have been fantastic, I have to say that as well, and they've coped with it brilliantly, but, um, but it has been different. So you mentioned engagement. Obviously, that's taken a bit of a dip. But have you found any ways of keeping engagement up? Or was there something at the start which you have developed over time to now sort of help that student interaction in a setting where really there isn't too much connection apart from over Wi-Fi? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things is that obviously one of the main differences between university and school is, is that university shouldn't just be top down learning. It shouldn't just be the teacher imparting information to a group. Um, but the structure of this, this kind of video calling teaching, it becomes that they kind of fall back into that school routine. And I found that if I had sessions on the timetable for my students, which were I'm going to teach you this today, you know, this, this is a, in this module, we're learning this then they were signing in and just expecting me to talk to them for an hour. And that, that wasn't what I wanted it to be. So I ended up setting up another additional class time for them, which I made optional uh, because I couldn't make it compulsory. But where the, it was very clear that the rules of engagement were that they were going to come in and just talk about the news that interested them that week. And that I would give them advice on how they could turn those into their own original story ideas. I'd be there to guide them. But I was going to kind of, right from the start really ingrained that as being a student-led session and 
it didn't get um, 100% turnout for obviously it's an optional session but the people that came along have been much happier driving the conversation themselves in that session than they are in the ones where they're in the timetable as a seminar or a lecture or a workshop or whatever where they're just expecting me to do the work so that was quite useful, kind of having a, a kind of rules of engagement laid down and doing something which was kind of saying to them, you know, this one is for you. You're going to come and you're going to chat. They seem to engage with that quite well, some of them. Um, but it has been, yeah, it's been difficult. And you also mentioned um, the increasing importance of social media during the pandemic for experienced journalists and, I guess, trainees as well. But generally over the last 10, 20 years, the internet and social media has really blossomed and it's everywhere now. So over that period of time, what impact have you seen from social media on journalism? Yeah, I mean, so the, the narrative that everyone knows about that is that it has, it has dissolved the line between the journalist and what is now regarded as their former audience. That, I mean, we're just talking about top-down uh, teaching. The relationship between the media and our audience in the past was top-down. Journalists told people what was going on. And there were very limited opportunities for people to feed back up the chain what they thought about it. Generally, that only happened at the invitation of journalists. And social media has completely changed that relationship so that now anyone with a mobile phone or an internet connection is a content producer of some kind. And they have an equal right to engage in the debate and steer the course of public discourse. And that's been an enormously um, exciting kind of democratizing um, thing that the kind of social media had the potential to do. That's the narrative that everybody knows. And we also know that basically an awful lot of the good that could have been done by that has been undone by trolling and all of the kind of negative things that happen. But something that really interests me about social media is in theory, it should have brought us all closer. It has, it has another one of those technologies that has reduced the gap between people um, but actually, I think in the specific field that I'm working in, in journalism, it may have had the opposite effect in some ways. So it's, I mean, there's an example that comes out of some research that I've, I've been doing, which is into um, the police and crime commissioner elections. And I, I, I've been studying local news coverage of those elections. And I, I saw there's a, there was a newspaper that sticks in my memory in Hull, which in the month leading up to the 2016 elections um it spoke to about eight members of the public i use the word spoke very loosely it, it, it published comments from about eight members of the public as part of its coverage that was how it represented public opinion absolutely all of those people were actually you know comments sourced on social media or from website comments and most of them were anonymous so if you're you know, objectively looking at that, um, there is no way of knowing that they're real people. There's no way of knowing that they're not campaign kind of operatives who are inserting opinions that are useful to somebody's, you know, one candidate or another, or that they're just trolls. You've got no way of knowing whether they are legitimate opinions of people that live outside that particular police and crime area. So they're not voters in that area. And yet those are the comments that are representing the entire sum of public opinion in that particular newspaper's circulation area. And the reason was it was convenient. It was convenient for journalists who are increasingly not based in their own communities. You know, they've been moved out into, into regional hubs or they've kind of, they're fewer of them, so they can't spend time in the community. 
it's a lot easier for them to just go on social media and look at what people are talking about there and then report that. And that can't be mistaken for public opinion. It's such a flawed way of doing things because it's a self-selecting group. It's a group that we can't really know very well. It's so prone to trolling and to dis distortion. And we're increasingly, as, as, as journalists, relying on social media to reflect public opinion. And I think that actually distances us from our communities. It actually takes us away. It distorts um, what public opinion looks like in the media. And I think that's very dangerous. So I, th I think it actually might be just in some circumstances having the opposite effect to what everyone thought it might have when we first started out and when Twitter and Facebook and everything were just getting going. Yeah, and I think you see that nowadays and you've seen people be, I guess, more brazen partly because they're behind a keyboard. You know, there's less sort of accountability. And because people are finding on social media people who think like them and think their views and then you get all these echo chambers and that obviously has an effect on news and, and journalism as well because then you see different people reporting on different things and you know yeah. how do you sort of restore public trust in that if you know if journalists are not as connected with their communities but they're just looking at at social media which is just a plethora of information and opinion and um thoughts how do we find a way through this yeah no it's so difficult isn't it i mean i think i think you're absolutely right those echo chambers are, are dangerous enough when they just exist in social media when they when they become I mean, basically what that paper in Hull did is it legitimized those opinions by putting them in ink and and actually changes the nature it makes it seem more real um, I think that's a real problem and how you get through that is very difficult um, because the, there are two answers really to solving this. The first is to stop relying on social media to be a barometer of public opinion and to go back out and talk to people on the streets. But newspapers, um, where an awful lot of the kind of journalism that we're talking about here, the community-based journalism, a lot of that traditionally comes from print journalists. Um, No, local newspaper journalists all over the country who are the ones who are scouring our communities for news that then filters through to broadcasters and national newspapers and and, and kind of it, it's the the kind of atomic element of news is, is those kind of local newspapers doing that work it's been absolutely ravaged over the last decade or so that part of our um, news industry by first the economic crisis in 2008 and now by the pandemic um, to a point where there just aren't enough journalists to do that job the way they used to. So the cure is get back out into the community. But at the moment, I don't know that that's actually a realistic expectation of, of, of the media. They're doing what they're doing because they can't really afford to do anything else. And the other answer is, is kind of accuracy, isn't it? I mean, as you say, there's, there's the real danger of myths being legitimized and, and, and kind of um, shared around until the point where they become assumed to be true on social media, a huge problem. And we, we know that from um, any number of kind of political examples over the last few years. The, the answer to that, the, the kind of way of breaking through that is accuracy. But again, that's a really difficult thing. It sounds so simple, but it's a really difficult thing to actually kind of um, make work in practice because we're very confused these days about the difference between truth and balance and about which one is more important. Now you take an example, um, the US president says something false. Yeah. 
an unthinkable scenario, but you know, just, just run with it. And you've got three options as a media organization. If the, if the, if the U S president says something false, you can report what he said on the basis that he's the U S president and his words have news value and the public deserve to hear them regardless of whether or not they're true. And that would seem to have some legitimacy to it. You can report what he said and then find someone else to take the opposite view, which means it's more balanced, but you could be creating a false equivalence. And no matter what person you find to speak against the US president, he's still the US president. So his, his words are still going to have um, more weight attached to them in that way. So that's a very tricky thing. Or you cannot report what he said at all. But then you're starving your audience of information and opening up yourself to claims of being fake news or biased. We've seen all three of those scenarios play out just over the last few weeks. And none of those have ended particularly conclusively well. You know, if, if, you, if you don't report President Trump, then he has, he has a stick to beat you with that resonates with an awful lot of people. If you do report him, then you're... Um, you're sharing opinions which are potentially harmful at the moment to American democracy. Um, and it's, that's a really tricky paradox. The only way you get around it is by saying that journalists have an obligation to tell the truth. We must always just tell the truth. But until the public trust us to do that, any attempt we make to do it will look like bias and fake news. Um, and I don't know how you break that cycle. If, if, if someone like President Trump is so determined to say every time that they don't report what I'm saying, it's because they're scared to because I'm telling the truth. And that resonates with millions of people. Every time he does that, he, he kind of damages the trust bond that we need with the public that will enable us to break through the problem to begin with. And I, 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 I think we're still wrestling with that. And I, I think this is a problem that has become particularly pressing over the last four years and will become kind of a, a kind of brewing crisis over the next four or five years, I think. Yeah, it's such a difficult and massive thing to tackle. And I guess in this, in this country, you know, our national institution, the BBC, we kind of use the impartiality thing that you were saying before, where the BBC has to have voices on both sides to to tell a, a comment or give a commentary on a narrative. So you um, actually recently published a paper uh, on doing some research on uh, the BBC where you assessed um, the delivery of BBC Radio 5 Live's public service commitments. What prompted this research? Um, why was it important to, to study this? So, I mean, at the time we did that, the BBC had been the subject of a long and very lively debate about how it should be regulated. BBC had always traditionally regulated itself, um, whereas all other broadcasters were regulated by Ofcom. And um, there was some discussion about whether that was creating an uneven playing field, that the BBC was unaccountable. And it was unaccountable for how it used public money, which is obviously a, a, a kind of a real sticking point for them in terms of you know, when the right wing particularly tries to take a hammer to the BBC. Yeah, that's a particularly vulnerable point for them. Um, so just as we were starting to look at that project, the Conservative government had decided that Ofcom should regulate the BBC, that the BBC Trust could no longer be the sole regulator. And there were a whole load of new commitments made by the BBC about what then it should be doing 
what were the expectations um, of the audience of the BBC. Um, but the BBC was very resistant to being regulated by anyone other than itself. So we, we wanted to have a look and see what the impact of that change in regulation was in real terms. And the best way of doing that was to take the output of one of the BBC's kind of major news channels to look at what it was saying it would do on that channel and then look at the reality of it to see whether they matched. So we looked at uh, BBC Radio 5 Live because it is um, one of the BBC's main 24-hour news channels and it had made a commitment to Ofcom that 75% of its output would be news and current affairs. Um, and what we did was develop a methodology for first of all, defining news and current affairs and working out how that differed to other types of content that were filling the air. That includes sport, because sport was defined differently in the um, Ofcom commitment. So sport was something, but obviously there's entertainment, there's advertising, promotional activity, um, all kinds of other things that can go on the airwaves. And we, we, we basically listened to days worth of BBC content and minute by minute, assessed whether or not it was news um, I mean, and it, it, that was yeah. interesting for me because when I was reading the paper and I've always viewed I mean I haven't really listened to Radio 5 but I've always viewed it as a sports channel like that's how it's always appeared to me so when you said it was actually primarily supposed to be news that, that was sort of surprising to me <laughs> And when it first launched, it was BBC Radio 5 Live was, was launched um, essentially because the BBC was jealous of the 24-hour news networks that, that were coming through in America at the time of the Gulf War, uh, the first Gulf War. And the BBC wanted to have a serious 24-hour news channel where it could report in the way that America was reporting the updates um, from, from the Gulf. Um, so yes, I mean, it's, its origins were very much as a news station, but obviously that developed over the 90s into being news and sport, but still very much news and sport. Whereas what we discovered um, from listening to it was that it has become much more of a chat channel. Um, uh, it's become a kind of call-in kind of focused channel. And what really interested me about what we discovered, I mean, it, the headline result was that less than 50% of their content in the week was classified as news. An awful lot of the rest of it was classified as entertainment. Um, and a lot was classified as sport, more sport than they said they were doing. What really interested me was that if you're going to run a call-in, this is another thing about uh, representation of public opinion in the media, which is something that I'm really interested in. Um, you have choices about what kind of call-in you're going to do. And on BBC Radio 5, even on days when there were big, divisive news stories happening, stories about Brexit in particular during this period, where people's opinions would have been really valuable to public debate, they were choosing to invite calls on really banal topics. You know, there was one day where I, I think I remember rightly, it was, do you prefer green or red peppers? <laughs> was their choice of call-in topic. And they dedicated quite a lot of the show to amusing um, kind of bits from, from listeners talking about whether or not they preferred green or red peppers. And it, it was entertaining radio if, you, if you're just kind of have it on in the background while you're working or driving or whatever, but it wasn't news. And of course, the fundamental point of this is that if you're using public money to produce a station that you're saying is 75% news, 
that's a very expensive undertaking. You need to employ a lot of journalists to make 75% news. And you expect that that's going to then have an enormous value to informing people about what's happening in this country. But what the BBC is actually doing is quite cheap content. All you need to have is a presenter and a phone line to, to do the, the call-in about the peppers. Um, incredibly cheap content. And then was basically marking its own homework and saying, well, this station is running fine. Um, you know, this is absolutely doing what we said it should do. And we contended that it wasn't and that, that, that its rivals would have a genuine complaint that they were subsidising cheap entertainment content, which should have been something else. So you found this out and this was obviously very surprising. What happened after you published the paper? What was the impact of these findings? Well, I suppose the immediate impact was that the BBC didn't agree with us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Unsurprisingly. Um, I mean, full full disclosure, we received funding from um, the wireless group for this. And the wireless group is uh, a a body which um, is involved with um, Sky Radio and with LBC and a few others. Um, commercial radio stations who obviously um, were particularly interested in it was you know the the methodology was entirely sound it was a a scientific study of of the news but nevertheless the agenda um, behind that from the point of view of, of the wireless group was that they wanted to use it to demonstrate that the BBC was creating for itself an unfair advantage. And that's exactly what they did. They took our findings and 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 said that the BBC dismissed it. Um, but it got launched at the Palace of Westminster. We had a breakfast with uh, members of um, members of Parliament and members of the Lords discussing um, exactly what an even playing field for broadcasting would look like in this country and exactly what a healthy news broadcasting environment would look like. And we were able to um, at least kind of maybe inform the debate around that. By that point, the change really had already happened because Ofcom were um, involved in the regulation of the BBC at that point, and they expressed an interest in our research and in using our methodology in future to c- continue to assess the BBC. Um, so, you know, in, in, in that respect, I mean, obviously, in terms of most people's lives, probably that research didn't have an enormous impact. But behind the scenes in the media, it, it was an important part of a debate about what good radio looks like in the UK. And, and we were very proud of it. And what was it like going and talking to MPs and you know presenting your findings to people who are going to enact actual change? I would probably be very, very nervous. But what was it like for you? Have you done this sort of thing before or...? Now, that was a first. Now, I have to say that was a first. I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, it is quite intimidating. You walk into the Palace of Westminster and you've got your visitors pass on and you're shown through to a, a room that was somewhere below the House of Lords and it, it looked like something out of Downton Abbey. It was amazing. Very intimidating kind of surroundings. But once you're in the room, what you have to remember is that you are the expert. They're not. They've come there to listen to you to, to describing what you've done and what you think it means. and they were genuinely interested. I mean, we had a lot of questions, um, particularly from a few peers in the room um, who had not really thought very much about what regulation means for the quality of the stuff that actually comes out of your radio when it's on your kitchen sink, you know, on the kitchen counter. Um, And they were genuinely interested in in what 
um, influence a regulator might have over the BBC and how that might affect things. And all they had was just lots and lots of questions about it. And, and once you realise that you, you, they've brought you in there because you know the answer to these questions, that you can help them to understand the issue, it actually very quickly becomes... Um, you know, a really fascinating experience and you, you lose that sense of intimidation very, very quickly. And, you know, I mean, that's the same as, as anything else with communication. If you know, we, we'd obviously thought about what our main findings were before we went in there, we thought about our audience uh, coming back to the point at the top. Um, you're always going to have the jitters at the beginning. I, I still have them before every single lecture that I do with students. But if you're confident in what you have to say and, and the knowledge that underpins it, then then it's fine, you know. And, and and it was it was a really really fun experience talking to MPs about that stuff. I would love to do it again. So coming away from work life, are there any good books or videos you'd recommend to anyone who's interested in finding out more about journalism or communication or anything actually that you read or listened to or watched and thought? I really enjoyed that. I'm going to recommend that to someone. So, I mean, if anyone was interested in, in kind of the, the, the skills of um, communicating to a mass audience in the way that a journalist does, then the book that I would recommend is The Universal Journalist by David Randall. Um, he's a journalist who worked a long time at The Observer and is now at The Independent. And it's one of the main kind of textbooks on what a reporter does and how to write the facts uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a really, really good guide for, for that kind of uh, that kind of writing. I, I recommend that to all of my students. I wouldn't hesitate to, to recommend it here. The other book that I would recommend, um, I would definitely recommend, is Eats, Shoots and Leaves by Lynn Truss, which is kind of one of the, uh, it's been around a long time. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's the, the basic book of grammar. Um, and, you know, all good communication starts with good grammar and good spelling. Um, you know, you can't have clarity without those things. And I would always recommend that to absolutely everybody. Um, but there's also a podcast I mean, with that kind of unfinished novel in mind, but also with any kind of communication, any kind of storytelling, which ultimately all communication is, it's all storytelling. Um, there's a podcast and a book called The Story Grid, um, which is the... Um, it charts the efforts of a new novelist in getting his first book finished and published. And it's a conversation between him and his editor. Uh, and it takes you through the kind of warts and all process, chapter by chapter of, of what he was doing, what he was trying to inte intended to do with this writing. And then the editor slamming him down and telling him why it doesn't work and what he needs to do differently. Um, and it's incredibly constructive and really insightful to the process of turning an idea into a product that works. Would recommend that massively. Oh, amazing. And I love what you said about communication just being storytelling. I think that's, that's, such, a, that's such a pro tip. I know when I was writing my thesis, that was one of the things they, they said to us is that start with the story, start with the narrative and then just pad your information onto that because that's what that's what is the backbone of it. Um, so what other tips do you have or what are the most important things for effective communication in, in your opinion? So, I mean, we, we started off with the know your audience tip and I, I, I'm going to repeat it. I think you, you cannot communicate unless you're thinking about who you're communicating to. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I would restate that time and time again as, as being a crucial part of it but the other thing the other tip I would give 
um, for effective communication is read more, watch more, find people who speak to the same audience as you. Because there will be someone out there who already does and look at how they do it. What makes their communication to that audience effective? One of the things that I spent a bit of time doing in the summer this year, when I realized that we were going to be doing a lot of online teaching at the university and the university's policy on that was that there should be a, a good percentage of pre-recorded lecture material that students could engage with because if they might not have the technology to be able to engage live all of the time, you know, it might be that they, they don't have an, an internet connection strong enough to always come into teams. So I was going to have to create a lot of pre-recorded videos. I ended up making more than 30 just for this term of teaching. Um, I, I sat down and I started watching an awful lot of YouTube channels about gaming and about music and things that were aimed at late teenagers and that were speaking to them really effectively, people who had millions of followers um, and looking at what they did and how they did it. And I, it wasn't that my lectures were going to suddenly look like a Nintendo podcast or, or, or vlog, but there were things about how they're edited, the pace of them, the structure of them, which I can borrow and make my videos more engaging to that same audience, that same, you know, 18, what do you do to make an 18 year old watch a 15 minute video about the structure of a typical news story? Well, the answer to that is, is hidden in all of those videos that are out there on YouTube. And, and, you know, anecdotally, at least it's been working because I, the students have been engaging with that video content pretty well. And, and it's been making them laugh, which I think is so important. You've got to find the fun um in in content like that because if you if you, if you don't um then just they're going to drift away they're not going to be engaged by it yeah that's some amazing information rob thank you so much for for joining me today it's really really fun to talk to you and hear about your research and and your communication tips yeah it was a pleasure so to finish i want to ask you what is the one thing that you would like to leave listeners with I'm going to be really boring and say, know your audience. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to take this opportunity to think about it. And, you know, your audience, your audience is going to be people who are doing lots of different types of communication. They might be people that have a product to sell, an awareness campaign. They might be looking for people to participate in some kind of study. They, you know, or they might be trying to publish the findings of a study. All kinds of things that, that people might be trying to do. Think about who's at the other end of that process and think from their perspective, what is the most important thing, the most engaging and fascinating thing about the story you're trying to tell them. Um, and if you can do that, then your communication will work. It was great to talk to Rob about what he's learned through his career on the front line of communicating with the public. Knowing and understanding your audience is something that came up again and again through our conversation. And it's crucial, whether you're telling someone how good your product or service is, or disseminating information to non-experts. If you don't understand your audience, you won't be able to convey your message in a meaningful way, and it won't have much impact. In this digital age, it was interesting to hear his perspective on social media, the impact it's had on journalism, and the perils of small subsets online distorting the opinion of a wider community. For life sciences, this is particularly important when trying to convey complex information to the public, like the development of a coronavirus vaccine. 
I also loved and really related to Rob's tip on communicating with general audiences. Tell a story as if you were explaining it to your mum. If you liked this conversation, let me know. You can find more information about this episode by heading to the Malby website. Use the hashtag pros and comms on social media to carry on the conversation and make sure you follow pros and comms on your favourite podcast platform to keep up to date with new episodes. Thank you.